0: This is the Design Thinking Roundtable. I'm your host, Priyanka Vora. As I record this episode from my house in Brooklyn, the country has been under a lockdown for over a month as we struggle to halt the spread of coronavirus. We are all witnessing an unprecedented event and trying to adapt to studying, working and remaining active, all while confined to our homes. And in these trying times, I'm learning about the power of communities. And this episode explores how the connections we have with our communities can help in the toughest situation. But before we investigate the power of connectedness, a disclaimer. Some listeners may find the episode upsetting as it discusses suicide prevention. Please use your discretion. We also have some resources on suicide prevention in the show notes.
1: We turn now to what some military officials call an enduring and pressing emergency, the rise in veteran suicides. A congressional subcommittee held a hearing today on military suicide prevention. On average, about 20 veterans die this way every day. Since 2017, at least 25 veterans have taken their lives on the grounds of VA facilities, seven this year alone.
2: Suicide among veterans is 22% higher than for people who never served in the military. It's not the obvious reason you'd think. The rates of suicide are just as high among vets who never deployed to a war or saw combat. But it's a really complex thing to study because suicide remains a pretty rare event and you can't ever ask someone who has actually taken their own life about the reasons. And when you start to dig in a little bit more to those numbers, we know that some groups are impacted more than others with suicide, including veterans. And data that we do have from the VA says that the suicide rate for veterans is one and a half times higher than it is for non-veterans.
0: That was Commander Shannon Kinsey-Lee, who is a lead for the strategic partnerships team at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. She is a long-time member of the US Public Health Services and well-versed with Veteran Health Administration. CDC's Injury Center partnered with the lab at OPM to apply human-centered design to better understand veterans' perspective on how to prevent suicide as they transition out of military services.
2: I had had the good fortune of dealing in human-centered design, you know, for a couple of previous projects, and so knew some of the power of simplicity, and, you know, I also, you know, as it relates to the veteran topic specifically, and a lot of other public health issues, is that it's Really complex. And there are people that are impacted by the issue that we just have a hard time figuring out how to reach. And, you know, one of the huge benefits of the human centered design methodology is going out and speaking to people. And what better way to figure out how to reach? you know, a broader group of hard-to-reach people is by going out, finding them, and then having these in-depth conversations around, you know, what is it, you know, what was your experience like? What do you want? What's your desire? What types of programs would actually benefit you? You know, instead of us just developing based on our own ideas and best evidence, you know, layering, um, the scientific data and what we know, but layering it along with actual human need and desire. And I think, you know, that's where we saw the real benefit of using um, this methodology in this area.
0: Commander Lee saw an opportunity to collaborate with the lab at OPM, an agency with the U.S. Office of Personal Management that helps government organizations to transform their services using human-centered design. Commander Lee's team wanted to go beyond the conventional research methods like surveys and focus groups and further explore if design thinking could empower CDC with insights from the veteran population.
2: Oh my goodness it's almost hard for me to step out and imagine a world without human centered design um but you know a lot a lot of times these questions are are gotten to through um you know our our communications folks and our scientists you can go out and they can do focus groups, and you can do, you know, interviews and get some of that that information through more traditional sort of survey methods. You know, I think that one of the benefits of human-centered design, you know, is the relationship development and the degree and depth of how you can explore questions. that sometimes it's hard to get from those traditional methods. But, you know, I, I do think that there are a lot of you know, methodologies employed um, that, are, that are similar. Well, you know, similarities are both are interested in going out and speaking to people. You know, both get you to the communities, both can um, develop relationships.
0: CDC identified social connectedness as a key evidence-based strategy for preventing suicide. But they wanted to go beyond the traditional research methods and use human-centered design to elicit empathy for the veteran population. They wanted to learn, understand the wants, needs and experiences of young veterans during the transition out of military service and to explore how peer, family and community connectedness may have impacted their journey during that time. Here's how OPM bridged this knowledge gap. Ben Winter, a service designer at the lab at OPM, explains how this project came to life.
1: So we had done a prior project with CDC, sort of test of what human-centered design was, but that was really focused just on this in-house library experience at CDC. And they wanted to see what value this approach had for the sort of bread and butter core work of the the Centers for Disease Control, namely what value does human-centered design and design thinking have to offer to public health and public health practice at the national level. So a few uh, folks who came to a symposium that we led at CDC also recognized that it offers, in one respect, a much more sort of human level, ground level uh, perspective on a problem that would pair very well, they thought, with the sort of 10,000 foot view of the large data sets that they monitor and survey uh, across the country related to the prevalence of things like suicide and other uh, public health concerns. They thought that the expertise that CDC has in identifying what is going on in particular dimensions of public health across the country, that human-centered design could help them better understand why that is going on, and maybe even more importantly, how to begin to intervene to bring about more desirable outcomes and ultimately better public health.
0: The challenge was to take the huge amount of data that CDC had accumulated and pair it with OPM's human-centered design practices to achieve their goal. Lee Chan, who helps develop and implement partnership engagement strategies at the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control explains.
2: We work a lot with data here at CDC and that's really our bread and butter is surveillance and research so having the opportunity to go out and sort of pair that quantitative research and quantitative information with that with that qualitative piece, really taking a deep dive to really generate that sense of empathy for this, this group of individuals was really an incredible experience. And I think that was really the aha for us is it really having these sort of unstructured conversations with these veterans and veteran-serving organizations really helped us see, better understand the role that public health could play in this larger effort to prevent veteran suicide, and particularly helped us see the role that CDC could play and be complementary to this larger effort to prevent veteran suicide.
0: These unstructured conversations, CDC experts thought, could be the key in understanding how the connectedness model could help young veterans who are not currently accessing VHA healthcare. And CDC's data proved vital to the design thinking process. As Ben and his team started narrowing their search for veterans they wanted to interview, they relied on the data to identify pockets that they wanted to concentrate on to learn firsthand from the veterans on what could be done to arrest the spiraling suicide cases among the population.
1: It was CDC's data that told us that this was a population at particularly high risk of suicide. And then we cross-referenced that data with various sort of geographical data around the you know, density of uh, veteran populations across the country in order to pick particular locations to go and reach these people. But yes, it was CDC's data that helped us to identify what was the kind of target population.
0: The CDC and OPM spent a considerable time planning who to interview, what to ask, and how to ask seems trivial, but extremely vital to the process.
1: The project began with a series of conversations just between our core project team at the lab at OPM and the core project team at the injury center at CDC, beginning with the kickoff meeting and then uh, you know just to understand our roles and responsibilities of all the team members and then to yeah to narrow down on who, what, where, why, and when. <laughs> we were focusing on for our discovery field work. That was informed, in fact, by an initial workshop that we convened at CDC with both public health subject matter experts, as well as um, state and local public health officials, and some veterans in the Atlanta area where um, CDC is located. So at that point, we had not identified the locations or even really the sort of topical focus of the project other than suicide prevention from a public health perspective, which is necessarily very broad. And so bringing those people together was not to do anything about really generating solutions or anything like that, but helping us to frame the problem and to strategize the Field work that we were going to do to learn from veterans firsthand. So that group helped us to focus particularly on this notion of connectedness in veteran populations as a key component and a component that is perhaps less understood and maybe better kind of positioned for designerly kind of tools and ways to inquire into. And then we took that idea, the CDC data that told us that young veterans not accessing VHA care were at particularly high risk, and then map that over areas in the country with already known high density and population of veterans living there. So that was partly a practical reason because we needed simply to recruit enough people to speak with, and particularly people who maybe aren't already so plugged into a lot of veteran serving organizations and activities. So we wanted to go where we knew there were a lot of veterans, but also high prevalence of younger veterans who may not be accessing VHA care.
0: Ben's team was aware that they were not expert counselors. Service designers are generalists and facilitators. In the context of this project, being mindful of this non-expert position was crucial. They were therefore partially careful to engage in deep listening and avoid evaluating.
1: It's hugely important to acknowledge that I am neither a public health official nor a clinical social worker, psychologist, what have you. So we had to be very delicate in approaching this issue. And frankly, letting the veteran that we were speaking with in any Given interview, kind of lead us wherever they were comfortable going because I was much more comfortable risking not getting what we needed out of any given interview than I was with, you know, triggering a past trauma or in any way harming those people who um, participated in our research. So the focus, again, really was simply on connectedness of veterans in their daily lives and asking them just to kind of tell us their story. Explaining beforehand, of course, the sort of general purpose and focus of the project. So they knew, you know, roughly (laughs) what we were getting at, but were invited to speak about, you know, any hardship or struggle or even experience with suicidal ideation or behavior only when and if they were comfortable and wanted to offer that. We also had an activity that kind of was the backbone of of the interviews where we drew a timeline, you know, typically beginning, um, well, honestly, beginning when they enlisted uh, sometimes even before that in the military all the way through to the current moment and having them just use that as a framework for telling us about their experience and then literally drawing a, a, a curved line across the timeline to indicate sort of moments of sort of highs and lows, right, in their experience, as well as moments uh, when they felt particularly connected or disconnected from others to see if there was any alignment there. Certainly not a scientific method, but another good method of kind of facilitating storytelling in in a way that put them sort of in the driver's seat.
0: While you were describing your interviews, I was reminded of situations where I found myself interviewing someone who has lost a friend, family member, and that was actually tough. You don't want to trigger trauma and be sensitive, but also get the right information as a journalist.
1: Yeah, so i was involved in almost all the interviews and i'll just say right off the bat that it was like hugely transformative and eye opening for me personally um not being a veteran myself which you know is also something to factor in to how you approach the conversation how you explain yourself and how you yeah conduct an interview like this so my experience somewhat to my surprise was that in fact most people were very interested to speak with us they might have had some initial skepticism or concern about who we were, what our intentions were. But as soon as they discovered that, you know, our intentions were to try and bring deeper understanding to the the problem of suicide among veterans. And frankly, our only interest was to listen and to learn from them rather than to diagnose or prescribe or judge or critique in any way their experience, I found them to be, you know, enormously candid, some of the best storytellers I've ever met. And yeah, really sort of forthcoming with some, in some cases, really painful experiences, in some cases, some really inspiring experiences, but generally quite
0: willing. Ben and his team used a novel approach to find the most vulnerable period. The period where a veteran may need the most support. Ben's team handed a paper and a pen to the veterans they were interviewing and actually asked them to plot the challenging moments. And here's what they found.
1: The other kind of key thing that, again, that activity and just that kind of moment in their stories repeated over and over again, highlighted for us is that they're being handed from one huge bureaucratic system to another one, namely the Department of Defense to the, the VA, right? Those systems operate differently. They do different things for the, the daily life of a veteran versus a soldier. And so not only were they, you know, kind of dealing with the enormous transition of just, you know, coming in some cases out of combat experience into the civilian world and out of a kind of military family life into their domestic family life. In some cases, they were also dealing with like the enormous learning curve of an entirely new bureaucratic system, which kind of managed so many of the you know, benefits and requirements that govern their daily lives.
0: The teams narrowed down their insights from these 46 interviews to about 700 quotes, a manageable pile, as Ben calls it, and then started looking at commonalities and patterns. Stigma around mental health emerged as a deterrent when it comes to accessing mental health services but that was not a new finding what surprised ben was the comfort with which veterans were discussing the stigma and reaching out to other veterans for support
1: yeah stigma was something that came up over and over again in the conversations and it was surpri- both surprising and not right because i think it's it's something that many people knew before we did this work that that there's a certain culture in the military and, and in another professions as well, where you just sort of, you know, do your job and don't complain and don't, you know, raise issues about your own issues of mental health or emotional state. And so, you know, that wasn't a huge surprise. But at the same time, I was surprised that these veterans we were speaking with were so candid and so emotionally forthright and quite self-aware, it seemed most of the time that it seemed kind of at odds with what they were telling me about the culture that they had come from in some cases. In other cases that, you know, there were positive stories of of folks in the military, you know, opening up and reaching out and providing support to each other. So it's again not a uniform experience by any means. But another interesting paradox within it was that sometimes it seemed like they, the people we were speaking with, were extending a lot more sensitivity and understanding to their peers, you know, particularly if they are veterans around issues that they're going through, more so than they were kind of offering that same sensitivity and understanding to themselves. So there's simultaneously amidst this, you might call it macho kind of culture of uh, stoicism. Also, it seems like a pretty common practice of picking up the phone no matter what when your buddy calls, right? When your friend from your unit, no matter what time of day or night, when they need to talk, you talk. Maybe you don't get into the nitty gritty of every emotional dimension that uh, they're experiencing, but you pick up the phone and you're there for them. In a way that they weren't often at the same time really um, inclined to pick up the phone and call for someone. So they were willing to offer, but not not as often reach out for support.
0: The power of human-centered design is in the stories it uncovers, the voice it gave to silent groups, here veterans. The interviews illuminated things that were often taken for granted. They also helped articulate paradoxes, that turned into opportunities for design.
1: We had research that talks about the role of social, even professional and educational relationships in the well-being of veterans, but frankly of anyone in their daily lives. And we had anecdotal sort of evidence and, and recommendations from stakeholders and folks in the framing workshops that we convened to look in this area. And our understanding of what connectedness meant to veterans certainly evolved uh, over the course of the project. Our awareness of how different veteran-serving organizations are trying to promote connectedness evolved. So in our final report, there is a distinction between a sort of community integration model of a veteran-serving organization, which you can basically think is sort of like an umbrella organization that helps to coordinate other social service organizations and integrate their services into something that a veteran would experience more holistically. And then connect to this model VSOs that are really just about anything they can do to convene veterans and community members around projects or group fitness or any other activity of mutual interest to them in order to keep them Connected, right? So that whatever the intangible, ineffable benefits of that may be, they are benefiting from that.
0: The interviews that Ben's team did provided CDC with vital insights into the lives of veterans they were designing for. There was more to the numbers. As a veteran from Texas told Ben, he felt closer to the guys he served with than his childhood buddies because they haven't had the experiences he had. Another veteran from Colorado said that they wouldn't turn to family for help. Veterans seem to be connecting with other veterans, and activities like going to the gym together help them to remain connected. Not every veteran needs therapy. They need connection, pointed a veteran. Ben's team created storylines to explain the events that occur in a veteran's life. The stories of loss and survival. Call it insights, observations, perspectives. Ben's team helped the CDC to learn a little more behind those grim statistics. Thanks for joining us. We hope you tune in again for another episode of the Design Thinking Roundtable as we discuss the possibilities with more such professionals who are delving into the problems that we face as a community and finding simple solutions to complex problems that we created. We would like to thank our sponsor, NYU Tandon's Department of Technology, Management and Innovation and to our partner, the Design Lab at NYU Makerspace. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. At DFA NYU. And if you think this episode could be of interest to someone in your community, share it and don't forget to tag us once again. Our Twitter handle is at DFA NYU. And I'm your host, Priyanka Bora.